You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You may find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. We are pleased to announce our podcast as a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle and me at leadersandlegends.net. Howie Politics and State Affairs Pro offer insider election coverage, polling, and analysis in Indiana. Our nonpartisan news and legislative tools create a winning combination pro subscribers can't live without. For all the resources you need this election season and beyond, visit pro.stateaffairs.com slash in. That's pro.stateaffairs.com slash in. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Willard Stern Randall. He appeared on the podcast a couple of months ago to talk generally about our period of the the founding of our country, the revolutionary period, but he's coming back on today to specifically discuss his latest book, which is called The Founders' Fortunes: How Money Shaped America's Birth, How Money Shaped the Birth of America. His previous works include biographies of Washington, Jefferson, Alexander Hamilton, and others. They've been main selections of the History Book Club, and we're very grateful to have you on the podcast again, sir. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Let's just jump right into it. Uh, my, my, my podcast engineer, Chris Spangle, uh, accuses me of being particularly enthused and excited for my history author podcasts. And I plead like Spiro Agnew, Nolo Contendra to that charge. And so talking to you about this period is particularly fascinating because the closing line of the Declaration of Independence is, quote, and for the support of this declaration with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Please examine this sentence for us and, and tell us why you think fortune was included. Because everyone who signed that document or knew they were going to sign it understood that if their cause failed, if the revolution was a failure, if the British were able to uh, keep them in their empire and punish them for their, their insolence, that not only their lives, literally, but their fortunes would be, their fortunes would be confiscated. 
Um, these people were kids when there was a rebellion in Scotland, and it failed. The, the British brought in troops. It was a slaughter at a place called Culloden. The organizers. Is this the 45? The 45. The 45. Mm -hmm. Yes. The organizers of it were taken to London, tried for treason and hanged, drawn and quartered. A particularly brutal punishment in which somebody was hanged and then uh, basically chopped up and his his head put on a spike at the city gate. So everybody else got an object lesson. What happened if you resisted the crowd? And, And several of the people who signed the document had seen that. It's a very powerful lesson. And if you've seen the movie Braveheart, it's what happens to Mel Gibson at the end of the movie. He was hanged and then they cut down before he died so that he would be alive while his intestines were pulled out, which is the drawn part. And then he would have his limbs and his head cut off the quartering. Yes. So that's what they faced. That was the risk. Uh, But they felt very strongly that they couldn't let things go on where they were being treated as a conquered country. Uh, They were treated not as Englishmen anymore. Uh, They were being taxed more and more. They were losing their privileges as Englishmen. And there were actually British troops occupying the frontier in Boston as if they had been conquered. So after 10 years of provocations and feudal resistance, they decided that they would take the, the plunge, the risk to become independent, become an independent country. Is there a particular gap in scholarship? you wanted to fill in writing the founder's fortune? It's it's not so much a gap as something that was a hot idea over 100 years ago and hasn't been re-examined much since then. There was a professor at Columbia University named Charles Beard. It was ni- the ni- early 1900s. There was a lot of corruption in the country. Uh, there were the, the robber barons and uh, terrible working conditions women jumping out of a a building when it caught on fire because they weren't allowed out, Uh, all sorts of provocations. So historians had, uh, until this time, American historians had been busy making a deity out of of our founders. Uh, They made up a mythology the kids learned in school. Uh, Everyone was a saint. And what Charles Beard said, the people who wrote the Constitution were not like that. They were lining their own pockets. They were stock jobbers, brokers. Um, he didn't name names, but basically he accused the founding fathers of the Constitution and of the United States of being on the take. Well, I, I, I had both versions of history when I was growing up. Um, I got the standard George Washington cannot tell a lie cherry tree myth from my father when I was five. I got to, to uh, uh, college. It was much more sophisticated, uh, but it, it, it was pretty obvious that historians were following Beard's idea without reexamining carefully. Uh, in fact, a, a, a course was introduced at Harvard, which spread throughout academe called uh, uh, the dark side of history. The, 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 there was an underbelly uh, that had to be explored. Well, okay, but if you turn the his, turn it turn it over, turn it back over again, and take a fresh look, I was able to get documents that Charles Beard couldn't in 1913. All it took was five years of my life and a half a century before that to try to find out what these people were really like, and it just didn't fit. 
uh, knowing what, what I was learning about how much they had endured uh, to free themselves from uh, periodic imperial wars, uh, and then to be handed the bill, uh, what they had been through with uh, taxation to make a living, they had to become smugglers. One day you're a businessman, but one flick of a pen in, in London, and now you're a smuggler. So there was an awful lot of resistance to what what the impression that they, they kept feeling. Uh, and I didn't any hear, see any hint of corruption at the revolutionary conventions. And when I got to the Continental Constitutional Convention, I thought, I've got to go through the delegates one by one. I have to go through the signers one by one, which I have done. And they not only weren't getting rich, one of the authors of the Constitution had $10 in bonds in the revolution. And when he got the new bond issues of Alexander Hamilton that was supposed to make him rich, he had $12 now. It was more <laughs> like that than one or two of them who had thousands of dollars and made a nice profit. But on the whole, I think these were more idealistic men and deserved a, a very careful reexamination. So would you would you term your own book a revisionist history or just an updated one based on new sources and scholarship? I'd say more updated. I'm not trying to revise Beard. I'm examining. It's a reexamination of what has been taught in graduate schools for almost 100 years, because I went to a very good graduate school and I was I was a little bit shocked uh, that th there was no question these people were all on, on the make and on the take. And what I found out was if they were on the make and on the take, they weren't very good at it because most of them wound up losing everything for the cause. You've written several books, well-received, well-reviewed, best-selling uh, tomes on America's founding. So what new things did you learn in the process of researching and writing the founders' fortunes? Well, I never understood exactly why the French would engage in a, another world war with the British Empire after they had been thoroughly defeated uh, in the French and Indian War just a dozen years before. And one of the surprises was, and this, this came late along, that the prize for the French, if they could help the Americans, was to get trade exclusively with the Americans in tobacco to take the monopoly away from the British government uh, that had the monopoly because it was the imperial uh, crown and the colonies belonged more or less to the English. But, but, but the, the kind of little detail that really surprised me was why were they so entranced with the, the tobacco? They could have gotten that from any number of places. Why did they have to? Well, because they had this custom called taking snuff. They would take a pinch of powdered tobacco and pop it into their nostrils, snort it more or less, and then sneeze very hard, which I thought, well, first of all, it's a disgusting habit, but Dolly Madison did it. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, she had a little snuff box around her neck when she went for her reception for all the diplomats and politicians. And her mark of favor was let somebody else use his spoon to take out a little pinch of snuff. And then they would <laughs> sneeze together. I mean, this to me, this is treasure, this kind of it, it really brings it to life. So the French wanted to take away the tobacco trade so they didn't have to buy the tobacco from the English to make their snuff. Little sample. <laughs> and then, you know, there was some obviously uh, revenge factor. Well, and I have a couple questions about the French uh, for later in the podcast, but, you know, clearly they were looking for a way to gain some, you know, masculine revenge against the English. Cause you're right. The, the, the seven years war or the French and Indian war as, as we call it, which ended in 1763 was a thorough thrashing of the French monarchy all across the world. Right. It, it was, uh, revenge was more a personal motive from Lafayette, whose father was killed in the war uh, against the English, to the King Louis XVI himself, uh, who had seen uh, his, his empire vastly diminished. Uh, they had lost their entire navy. Uh, Maybe worse still, their diplomats failed again at the, at the peace talks, and France gave up all of North America or any claim to North America, and instead uh, settled for one island in the Caribbean where they could still get sugar. Uh, so uh, on, on every front, the French had, uh, had lost it, and they're very, very proud people, and they had a long history with England of of defending themselves against English invasions. I think what Lafayette wanted and the King of France wanted was to get in on the American side and take Canada back. George Washington was too smart for him. He sent Lafayette in the opposite direction. Uh, But I think that was the the motivation. It was revenge, but also um, the French wanted to get back a lot of what they so recently lost. I read a few articles lately and they're somewhat related to to kind of a phenomenon, that's the right term, happening in Great Britain, where historians are contending that the British pay too much attention to World War II, write too much about it, glorify it too much, and need to move on. And recently, I read an article or two that made the same contention about the founding fathers and the revolutionary era. So many books, so much veneration. There's so many more things to talk about. What's your, what do you, what say you to that charge that we, that we spend too much time reading, writing, and, and uh, canonizing the founding fathers? Well, I may read and write. I don't try to canonize. Uh, What I try to see is similarities between their time and ours. So when I write about the founding fathers and their attempts at one form of Congress or another, one kind of constitution or another, I can't help seeing that we have some of the same problems and some of the same struggles. Uh, And and I just don't think it's the role of the historian to play judged or to sit in judgment. Um, Somebody will sit in judgment on us, I'm sure. Uh, I'd much rather try to find out the truth about what it was like on the ground and among these people at the time. Uh, just as when I listen to the news now, I try to get behind that sensational opening line or headline uh, to see what's what's really going on under there. 
converting 18th century financial figures into 21st century numbers that we can understand is one of the most impressive and helpful things about your book. How were these calculations made and and did some of the numbers that you came up with astound you? Well, the first part of that is how did I come up with it? Uh, actually, there's a there's a tool used all the time to adjust for price increases. We use it all the time, the Consumer Price Index. I started using that with my Washington biography to try to find out uh, what kind of money he was getting for things, but how much he was getting, how much he was spending and parting with for the revolution. And then I thought, well, I really need to do that whenever I write a book, try to find out. So Benjamin Franklin uh, was the only paid official uh, in the in the in the Continental Congress as postmaster. What did he make? That was a question I had. Well, if you looked at uh, the number that Congress paid him, it was 150th of today's value of that money. And what I found was a constant that I could use between pound sterling and dollars, depending on the date. And there are are computer programs where you can actually take your choice of how to do these things. But currency traders do it every day. They have to know the relative value of things. So what I look for is worth. What could they get if they sold whatever it was? And with salaries that held up, uh, with the British pound, it's 150 times in 1790 uh, what what it is today. And then you do a second calculation and you get it into dollars. It's not it's not a difficult thing once you figure it out. And I think it's much more helpful for people to see it. In their, so Benjamin Franklin, as postmaster general of the United States, got $110,000 a year, our money, and an expense account. And how much was Martha Washington worth? When she married George Washington and and the, the the national debt of Great Britain and some of these other fabulous numbers. Well, um, Martha was worth about four million our money, uh, but that's just the cash. Uh, then she uh, was widowed and she was left the estate of her husband, who was an English lord, uh, and that included. Uh, 200 enslaved people. How do you put a value on them? Uh, But just the amount of cash that she had uh, to bring to Washington at the wedding, because this is still English common law. And when a woman married, she she became him. Uh, Any money or property she had became his, except for the dowry, the money that was passed down from mother to daughter. And Martha Washington, is the, her dowry was her slaves. And that's why George Washington could never free them. Uh, they were hers. Uh, but so she was very wealthy. She had a lot of cash. She had a lot of property. I described the, the wagon train of stuff that they took from her estate to Mount Vernon. It took them a week. And everything from uh, shovels to China to silverware to tablecloths to bedclothes, etc. George Washington took it lock, stock, and barrel uh, to Mount Vernon and said, okay, this is our our home now. We are talking with Willard Stern Randall about his latest book called The Founders' Fortunes, How Money Shaped the Birth of America. 
All the well-known actors of this period are are in your book, Washington, Franklin, Hamilton, Jefferson, and others. Uh, But this book isn't just about them. Um, How important was it to you to expand the list of founders who had a keen financial interest in what was taking place at this time? Well, to be fair about my research answering uh, Charles Beard, I had to look at at people at all levels. I just didn't want to get a handful of uh, the the people are usually on pedestals in our pantheon. Uh, We've we've had winners and we've had losers. Uh, Somebody named Silas Dean, totally lost to history. And there are good reasons. Uh, He was a Connecticut son of a blacksmith who went to Yale, married twice to millionaire or wealthy women. Uh, and put their money money to work for his family's mercantile firm, owned ships when the revolution came, uh, was was elected to Congress, was not reelected because other people in Connecticut didn't like him. But he stayed on and joined um, the the financial committee, more or less, that that got international trade going. One of the big things in this story, I think, is that modern global trade was beginning then when the Americans figured out a way uh, to get around the imperial system of Britain and France. They had international partnerships. They had contacts. Uh, Silas Dean was sent to France with with a notebook full of contacts of merchants. The leading leading playwright in France, Beaumarchais, when he wasn't writing um, Figaro, was... uh, investing in ships and buying and selling basically pirated ships. He was he was a broker close to the king. Franklin put Silas Dean in touch with him. And between them, they were commissioning ships, capturing ships. Um, and, and what Robert Morris, the financier of the revolution who worked with Silas Dean, he had a simple formula. He got 5% of whatever was on one of those ships, whether it sank, whether it went ahead. And three out of four ships could be captured by the British, but the fourth one would pay eight times as much of all. So mm-hmm. they, were, they were getting rich in a very modern way, commission brokers. Um, they were inventing a system. Uh, and when, when the revolution was over and they couldn't do that anymore, uh, Robert Morris wound up in debtor's prison, in prison for three years because he couldn't pay his bills. The man who paid George Washington's troops with his own notes. Silas Dean couldn't come back to the United States after he was in France because he had this really good friend that he really believed in named Benedict Arnold. Hmm. So there's a lot of that, too. I mean, um, if you look behind the mask of these fat cat founder fathers, it's very human. And there was there was many losers as there were winners. What do you think was going through John Hancock's mind as he signed the Declaration of Independence so boldly, considering what he did for a living and his prominence in the colonies? I think he's the most underrated of the founders. Um, he he was he was born in the son of a poor country uh, parson. He was adopted by a wealthy uncle who had no kids. He learned the business, the biggest business in New England, uh, with his own dock in Boston and ships and all of that. And he put it all on the revolution. Um, 
So when he said our lives, our fortunes, he really meant it literally. This man, when he cleared out of Boston with the British chasing him to Lexington and Concord, grabbed all the money and all the banknotes and even the treasury of Harvard College, which he was trustee of, stuffed it in a carriage and rode <laughs> like the Dickens to Philadelphia. So he had it all on the line. Um, and he knew that as president of Congress, his would be the first name to appear. And in fact, for four months, the others had time to sign. Many of them were on the run or going back to run their states, their new states. So the British had copies, printed copies of the Declaration and carried them around with them. And if they caught one of the signers, that person was headed for the gallows, hanging, drawing and quartering. They only caught one and the poor man died of cancer that saved his a horrible ending, but it was a hit list that they carried called the Declaration of Independence. Is there a conflict or maybe a debate between the relative value of land and and hard money at this time? Did people did people rather would they rather have a lot of the former or the latter, or did it matter? Well, I think they went for. I always get confused with former and latter. They'd rather have the land because Americans have believed from the beginning that real value was in the land. They came here for it. It mattered the most to them. And they knew that money came and went, not just because of spending, but laws got changed. You could have valid currency in Massachusetts one day, and the English would then ban the currency and make make Sam Adams' father have to pay back everything he had. Sam Adams was at Harvard when the British changed the rules, and Sam Adams wound up waiting on table because he couldn't afford to stay. His father had been busted by the, the, the financial laws of England. Uh, so they had more faith in land. The problem was, unless you had both and you had some money to pay rent for the land, uh, then you had nothing. George Washington had 100,000 acres of land, but he, he also had tenants, his former soldiers, who had no cash. They couldn't pay rent. And George Washington actually wound up evicting some of his veterans. Is, is this arbitrary? Let me say it a different way. Was the arbitrary nature of the British when it when it came to what you just described about how debts could be paid or what currency was valid or not, did that help fuel the resentment among the wealthier class of the, of the colonists? Let's put it this way. If you look at the Declaration of Independence, the list that Jefferson wrote, number one protest was that they had no currency and no banks. It was that serious. Uh, was it arbitrary? No, it was very calculated. Uh, the British Secretary of State, Lord Hillsborough, was afraid if the Americans prospered and moved west across the mountains, they would have no reason to keep trading with England or no longer be dependent on England for all the manufactured goods that Americans were forced to take because mm -hmm. the English kept changing the laws and said everything had to be made in England and then sold in America. And then traversed on policy. ships. Pardon? Yeah traversed on ships, certain certain classes or types of ships. It's oh, all the biggest I've, monopoly. I've, I've always loved this. It started 100 years before the revolution. It's called the Navigation Act. And under English mercantile policy, which stuck around until the 20th century, basically, all goods uh, from England or the English colonies had to be shipped on English ships with English crews. I mean, <laughs> that did not work. Uh, uh, 
the English had to catch the ship first and see who was on the crew. Smuggling flourished because Americans said there's, there's no way we're going to give you all of our crops, all of our profits, and then pay for the crews and the ship as well. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today is Willard Stern Randall, who's come back on the Leaders and Legends podcast to discuss his new book, The Founder's Fortunes, How Money Shaped the Birth of America. It's, it's interesting in the sense that the Seven Years' War, the French and Indian War, was enormously expensive for the British. No one disputes that. But how, so how justified were the British leaders in advocating and legislating for the colonists to contribute to the reduction of this debt in ways that they hadn't before? That's an excellent question, because if we were in the shoes of the British today and we had helped an ally, uh, we would expect the ally uh, to to help pay the bills when it was all over. And this is how I look at this thing. What what would we do? What would happen now? In fact, um, they, they really had a point. The Americans had been protected from the French and their Native American allies. Uh, but the problem was that the, the Americans paid for half of the French and Indian War as it went on. The English had a huge debt. I've estimated it was $10 trillion, a phenomenal number when you put it together with the arguments in Congress these days. Um, but uh, the Americans had fought, bled, died, and paid a lot of the bills themselves for four French and Indian wars before this time. So you've got a standoff. And it's it's so hard to come down on one side or the other that you had the loyalist Americans, a third of Americans thought the British were right about all of this. And they put their lives and fortunes on the line too. And they had to leave when they lost. And forgive me, I hate I think my history is is correct on this, but but tell me if it's not. The United States required 200 years later, for Great Britain to pay its Lend-Lease debts, like into the 1970s or 80s. I forget when it was. It was decades after the war. They didn't forgive a lot of that stuff. They said, look, this was the terms of the agreement. You owe us this money. Pay up. Oh, Harry Truman was was very tough. For example, uh, Winston Churchill kept coming over with his cigar and his hat out. And Churchill, uh, Truman finally said, you don't get another dime from America until you hawk the crown jewels. Um, they, had, they felt very strongly that the British uh, could not have survived if we hadn't helped them. But at the same time, um, the Americans had already taken most of the British bases around the world and, and either still have them or had 99-year leases. It wasn't exactly the British were uh, were. were being outrageous and saying, you lot, you, you didn't take the beating we did, and you could not have won without us either. So here's where being judgmental gets really tricky. Uh, there's so much there's so much on both sides that you have to agree with. 
I'm reading here the final payment of 83.3 million due on December 31st payment for Lynn least of 2006 was made by Britain on December 29th, 2006. So wow. 61 years after the war's over, we're still telling Britain to pay up. I mean, you know, I'm not trying to side with the crown here and be a Tory, but I mean, uh, there's a bit of hypocrisy there, per se, would you say? There's a little bit of hypocrisy, but it's a marvelous turning of the tables, <laughs> because this is exactly the problem at the end of the revolution. The British said, we we sent you everything, even if it was garbage or Martha's dresses never fit or the wheels fell off of George's George Washington's custom carriage. Uh, never mind. You used us as bankers. You used us with charge accounts. You never had any money. We worked with you, pay up. And Thomas Jefferson said, I'm not, I'm not gonna pay you a dime because when your soldiers were here, they killed my pony. Uh, they ripped my farm apart. So uh, Americans were already pretty good at, at rationalizing and justifying in international uh, relations like this. How shocked were the colonists when the British um, started passing legislation beginning with the Stamp Act, I think that's 1765, to try to pay down this debt. So were there some colonists who were completely and totally outraged, and those are the ones we hear about, and were there some who said, well, maybe we should pony up a little bit? Or was it less about the money and more about the slogan, taxation without representation? It's it's some of both. Taxation without representation really nails it. That's Sam Adams at his best. He he wrote wonderful bumper stickers for the revolution. (laughs) Uh, And and basically, um, all the colonies had charters from the English crown that gave them the, the right and the privilege to raise their own taxes and set the salaries of their own officials, fix their roads, their bridges, et cetera. Uh, no one ever said that the English could demand uh, that the, the colonists then pay the English uh, for the things that they thought were part of their charter, part of their deal. So Sam Adams and the, and the Boston radicals as they were considered had it right. Um, But at the same time, it was terribly unreasonable. The colonies would have been overrun by the French in the French and Indian War, especially. That was a knockdown, drag out battle on two continents. So they would they would have been trashed. The the French and the and the natives that they had organized were raiding all the way to Philadelphia, up rivers, across hills, etc. And if the British had not sent over armies, which lost more than they won, like Braddock losing thousands of men in an afternoon, if that hadn't happened, I doubt the the British colonies would have still been British. So again, to do this kind of history, you have to look at it from both points of view. Uh, The English said, you lot are living in luxury. You're riding around in coaches with valets in, in, in livery uh, while we're over here being taxed to death. Come on, pay your share. When my kids were studying uh, early American history, I always told them to to pay special attention to the Quebec Act of 1774, as it's really an underrated, in my view, and please, please, please agree with me, please, <laughs> or push back. An I underrated will agree with cause. you, not just because you're teaching a lesson to your, your children, which is 
a, a father's privilege, but it, it is underrated because it's what New England was fighting about. Because the part that people don't, st- we've gotten so secular in our history that we don't discuss the, the importance of religion to these people. In New England, it was, it was the mainspring. It was the main reason they came. And the idea that the English, after the French and Indian War, could pass a bill through the legislature of England without any approval or feed in from the American colonies and say, okay, from now on, Catholicism is the state religion, not only legitimate, but the state religion. Uh, All the the people who have settled there are basically feudal peasants again to do all the free labor. Um, And by the way, Canada is going to spread all the way down the Ohio Valley to Mississippi and cut off all the trade from the English colonies on the seacoast to the interior so that Canada basically has a monopoly on fur, which is the main reason most people went. There was no good reason to go to Canada except for fur. (laughs) And it united, it seemed, the colonists rich and poor, the poor who wanted to settle on some of the land, the, the rich who wanted to trade and own the land. The Catholicism part of it, obviously true, but in terms of the of, of how it fit into your book and, and the economic aspects of the revolution, the Quebec Act seemed to me was just a catalyzing event. I think that's right. And, and Sam Adams and the Bostonians try to get it going, the, 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 the American cause up in Canada, and it, it, it failed utterly. Um, the two sides were too far about. And by the way, the army that we sent to Canada or the two armies we sent to Canada, both of which failed, one under Benedict Arnold, they stopped along the way at the shrine of, of, a, of an evangelical preacher, George Whitfield, and they cut little mm-hmm. pieces of his clothes off and put them in their hats like relics. So there's that religious element there. The Protestants were going to take revenge on Catholic Canada, but we've stayed away from that subject. It, it needs to be woven in. We talked just a few minutes ago about how there were people in the colonies who supported the British and and some who did not. The most famous example of a family being torn apart is probably Benjamin and I think William Franklin, uh, but that's later during the war. But what was the attitude and and did the colonists have supporters? I mean, I know the answer is yes, but please talk about the support and supporters that the colonists had within Great Britain. Well, it's to the extent that Ethan Allen, uh, when he was captured trying to take Montreal with a handful of men who couldn't shoot, uh, when he was transported to England uh, to face trial and probably hanging and quartering, uh, that the British government dared not uh, try him or put him in prison because he had so much sympathy among the British. Uh, There were radicals in Parliament. a fellow by the name of John Wilkes, who was working on getting habeas corpus uh, so that they could not hold Ethan Allen or any American prisoners. And where where this goes today is that what the British solution was in a dark of night cabinet meeting was to get Ethan Allen and the American prisoners onto a ship where you could not serve a writ of habeas corpus. That ship, a Navy ship, is really the origin of the idea of Guantanamo Bay. That's fascinating. I didn't think of it that way. Um, armed conflict is sometimes referred to as a rich man's war and a poor man's fight. 
Would you say the American Revolutionary War is an example of this? Um, no, I would not. Uh, that 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 quote sounds very much is right out of James McPherson's uh, book on uh, the the Civil War. Battle cry of freedom. The, Battleground freedom. Yes, it's. I was a student of his, so I have to remember. It. Um, but it's not true about the revolution. I think the rich and the poor were in it. Many of the rich, um, it works out to about twenty-seven percent, um, became loyalists and fled either to England or walked across the frontier to Canada to found what we call Ontario Province and Nova Scotia today. Uh, but they weren't all rich either. It was rich and poor on both sides. So many of the loyalists on the foot soldier side were, were, were new immigrants who'd come in the last 10 years. They had no ties to Americans. Uh, they thought it was terribly unfair of the Americans be beating up on their mother country. Uh, many, many of the, most of the men who fought and died in the revolution, and it was a big percentage, second only to the Civil War in the percentage of people killed, wounded, or captured. Uh, so many of those men, they they were just trying to keep going. They would put their plant, their crop in in the summer and then they in, in, in spring and then go off and fight and hope they had enough, left enough money for their wives to buy anything they needed um, so that they had everything at stake, too. Uh, and what they were given and they did mutiny a few times uh, was scripts, slips of paper script that you would be paid so much when it was all over in land, in land. What they wanted was land bounties, yeah. 100 acres for an infantryman, 100 acres. Think of that in modern terms with our quarter acre lots, our suburbs. Uh, but that was the prize for so many of the men. They came for land. They couldn't afford the, the, the wealthy Americans before the revolution were gobbling up the land, forming land companies, competing with each other, trying to get more of the continent for themselves privately. But for the average soldier... Uh, it was a chance for 100 acres, and no matter how far in the back country it was. The idea that they had enough money to feed their families and leave some land for their kids. Is there a more accurate I don't know, aphorism or slogan saying during this period than the oft-repeated, not worth a continental? Oh, that's perfect. That slogan sums it really sums up the whole book. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's such great stuff. I mean, Alexander Hamilton had no money, literally had no money from birth to death. He had, and when he got it, uh, well, he squandered some of it on a year and a half with somebody else's wife uh, and drained his law partner's treasury, bad boy, uh, build a house for himself. But his son had been killed in a duel and he never went to it until he himself was killed in a duel and he couldn't afford he didn't leave anything for his wife, for his kids. Uh, they had a lot of land, but they didn't have any money. So they literally passed a hat at the funeral. Um, but when he was a, a colonel on Washington's staff, he was paid $60 continental was his salary for the year, which uh, was worth about four bucks our money. I mean, when I was a kid, you could get it with Cheerios in a box if you sent it away for a party favor. It was as worthless as Confederate money was at the time. Uh, it was it was so worthless that to pay the troops, Robert Morris 
took all his investments, all the notes everybody owed them, and he sat down in one weekend, cut, he got enough paper to cut up, had somebody cut it up, and he signed his name 6,000 times to Continental Notes to pay the men uh, 10, 20, $100. And he saw that they got it once a month so they wouldn't drink it all up, but they would have that 100-pound note when they walked back to their home on the frontier. Uh, they wouldn't be paupers. They wouldn't be debtors. It, it was that personal. But the money was, I have pictures of it in the book. It was absolutely worthless. So the Continental was the was the uh, uh, paper money issued by the Americans, by the quote unquote American government, for lack of a better term. Right. And one of the one of the things that comes through in, in your previous books and other books I've read is one of the huge advantages that the British had as they were traversing the continent is they would pay in gold and they would pay like in money and silver that the Americans, the colonists actually wanted and could use that had value. And that meant that these, these merchants or these farmers or these tavern owners didn't mind so much sometimes that the British came through because they paid for things in money that actually had value. That's exactly right. And, and, and the, the British and the French did it at Valley Forge while Washington's men were going hungry. And by the way, they weren't there most of the time. They were off getting smallpox inoculations. If the British knew there was nobody home in Valley Forge, the revolution would have been all over. But Washington inoculated his whole army uh, that winter. Um, something I've been interested in in the, in the recent mm. days is about uh, vaccinations here. Uh, but when the French came and joined us in the tail end of the Revolutionary War, they paid in gold. And Washington's troops were all broke. They would not cross over from Maryland to Virginia until they got paid in French coins. Fortune not only applies to the people who had money and were trying to keep it or augment it, but it also applied to the people who were trying to create their own fortune. Was the revolution viewed by some as a way not just to maintain their economic condition, but for people who perhaps didn't have money to find their fortune? Oh, I think it's it's hard to to eliminate that from the thinking of Americans after they saw all the hardship and suffering and death and privation. They had to have some hope that when it was all over, things would be better off in a financial way as, as well. So they 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 had to believe in their leaders as honorable men, uh, and I think that that's mostly the case, uh, almost entirely. Uh, but their idea of you chose a leader by how successful he was as a businessman. George Washington was a was a master businessman, innovator. Uh, he also was a master of self-publicity, like Franklin. Uh, he was a master of hospitality. Nobody went hungry if they came mm -hmm. through Mount Vernon. Yeah. Uh, and, and they were an example of what new Americans or ordinary Americans at the time could aspire to be. I think that's why they became almost legendary overnight when it was all over, because they were so different uh, from how things have been before them. You are listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest is historian Willard Stern Randall. His latest book is called The Founders' Fortunes, How Money Shaped the Birth of America. 
you go to Mount Vernon, you go to Monticello, you go to these other places and they're huge tracts of land and this opulent buildings and houses. And then you read books about them and you realize that to your point that you've made several times in this interview, they had no money. Jefferson literally had zero money. And you just think, how is this possible? But yet it was. So how did they manage to keep themselves in such penurious condition while you would think outwardly they're living in luxury compared to the average American of their day? Image was important to them. It was part of how you were chosen to be a leader. So it was terribly important to George Washington that while he was a not very good military officer in the frontier war of the French and Indian war, it was important to them that anything he got went into Mount Vernon, which he kept expanding, making fancier, et cetera. Um, so image was, was important to him. Uh, Jefferson believed as governor of Virginia during the revolution that you had to spend money. You had to put up a good show to sort of invest the office with dignity. If you were to be taken seriously and your new form of government be taken seriously, you had to put on a good show, even if you were broke all the time. And we've, we've had modern politicians, certainly, that believe the same thing. Um, and, and Jefferson, he was, if you could describe any, he was a compulsive shopper. He couldn't help himself. He bought right. so much stuff, so many antiques in Paris that he had to rent a whole ship to get it back to the United States. It cost him $80,000 modern money to ship the stuff back just for him to stay in a rented place for a year, which he completely remodeled before going to Mount Vernon, which took 54, um, which took 54 years to finish because he was always broke. <laughs> Amazon Prime would have been his undoing, I believe. <laughs> but he wasn't the only one. There were a lot of people who, who live that. You mentioned Hamilton, that literally Alexander Hamilton's family could not afford to bury him after he was killed by Aaron Burr and at the funeral, they literally passed the hat to offset the funeral expenses. That's exactly right. And then they passed the hat again to put a grave marker on it at Trinity churchyard, right across from the, the world trade center, uh, which uh, became the, the shrine of uh, uh, 9-11. Uh, so he's remembered warmly for that. Uh, but the fact that he left six kids, uh, his wife was from a wealthy family. Uh, yeah. Her father was General Schuyler, who owned thousands of acres of land. But they didn't have any cash. They didn't have any cash either. It, it's hard to picture these. It's it's almost it's almost the kind of lesson you take uh, you teach your kid if you have if you get some money, what do you do with it? Well, these people were hand to mouth. Uh, but they'd much rather have cake in the hand and have it conspicuous to people than to be going back in the kitchen and making some oatmeal. Uh, they, they had to keep on a show. Why didn't these these men who had all this land and no money, why didn't they just sell the land? Nobody had any money to buy it. So they made tenant farmers out of them, which is what so many Americans had come to America to get away from. Washington had tenants. He lent them the money to build a mill. They never built the mill, so they couldn't they couldn't process their grain. So they failed, and he was he was kind of merciless. 
Uh, he said, you've got to pay me. If you don't, I'll take you to court. And he did. Um, but basically, um, nobody had any cash. One merchant after the French and Indian War went around, a British merchant went around Connecticut and saying, there aren't 80 pounds sterling in this whole colony. There's no cash. <laughs> How did people do it then? How Barter. Bartering. They were very good at barter. George Washington switched from tobacco to wheat. He could take the wheat and he could trade with somebody else for something he needed. Uh, and most of the economy, the IRS would have an awful time uh, catching our founding fathers uh, with many all the things that they did that the British couldn't catch them doing. Uh, but they survived by by trading with each other. And they set up an international trading network as a result. No discussion or dissection of the economic condition of the revolutionary era is complete without a deep dive into slavery and the slave economy. How did this peculiar institution affect the founders' fortunes and the colonial economy in general? The entire Southern economy, by Southern, I mean everything south of Pennsylvania, uh, depended on slavery. Uh, New England took a dim view of it. I've gone through all the founding fathers and the delegates to the different conventions in New England, and there's only one or two that had one or two slaves, and they became so embarrassed. Benjamin Franklin had a slave, and when he was an old man, Benjamin Franklin gave him his freedom, but he was old and he couldn't, he couldn't work. He wandered the streets until his neighbor said, you got to take him back. You got you to gotta help him, got to keep him alive. George Washington, in his will, set things up so that his slaves would be freed by his wife on her death. He was afraid if he, literally was afraid if he freed them in his will, that his wife wouldn't be safe. That he was, like many Southerners, he was afraid of a slave revolt. Um, and so it went, some of them, you know, have a 26-year-old member of Congress who's got 800 slaves growing rice in South Carolina. I mean, they were getting rich on slavery. But there was this thing that uh, in, hard for us to understand that these men could fight to avoid being the economic slaves of England and still enslave people themselves. And I think the reason, I think underlying was an attitude that the English especially brought from, from Europe that if you didn't have white skin, you were a lower order of being. The uh, Archbishop of Canterbury in the early 17th century actually set up sort of a chromatic scheme for how far you were from England. And the farther you were, the darker you were, the more evil you were. I mean, this was in their skin. They had slavery in Ireland. The, the slaves were not black. Um, they 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 won a war, they won an empire, and they enslaved the inhabitants. When they ran out of free labor, they, they didn't bat an eyelash. And, and New England was in, in on it too. And that's, that's why slavery was left out of the Declaration of Independence. The Southerners said, you touch that subject. Uh, and we'll point out that all those slaves that were brought to us came on your ships. And the profit from them turned into rum that you made. Uh, out of molasses, et cetera. They were all in it in different ways, but none of them thought that they could, I really believe they didn't believe they could solve this 
and get the country going at first. When it got really bad is when they refused to even discuss it after the Constitutional Convention, but even banned any discussion or petitioning mm-hmm. on it for another 20 years. They, ke- they kept kicking the can down the road while four and a half million people remained in slavery. But also, let's not forget that another quarter of the population were white men in bondage too, called indentured slaves. Uh, It it, it didn't occur to these revolutionaries. uh, The full meaning of freedom was freedom for everybody. But it's safe to say, and it's not controversial to say, that the the fortunes of many of the uh, leading members of the continental era who were Southerners were the result, those fortunes were the result of slave labor and the perpetuation, excuse me, of slave labor. It's, it's absolutely necessary to say, because while Jefferson was writing uh, immortal prose and doing his research, uh, it was labor, labor that built Monticello. It was slave labor that harvested and planted tobacco. It, it was slave labor. Uh, Washington is the only one that tried experimenting with bringing skilled white laborers to America and, and training the, slave, the enslaved people skills so they could support themselves. And I give them some credit for that. Uh, but there were people who did free their slaves. We just don't hear about them. Uh, they haven't gotten they haven't gotten the big biography along those lines. Uh, let me ask you very quickly about the, the 1619 project from The New York Times that won a Pulitzer Prize. Historians have been, I think, consistently critical. Uh, some historians, prominent historians, James McPherson, who you mentioned before, and others who have said it's a laudable effort and project and it's a story that needs to be told. But it's it's got a flawed thesis, perhaps, and is riddled with some pretty significant historical errors. Uh, you know this time period as well or better than any person living today. What was your take on it and what is your take on it? Well, my take is, in a way, it's like Beard. It's a revolutionary theory and idea, and it's going to be resistance to any big shift in how we read history. But it has to be considered. And if there are flaws in it, it has to be corrected. It can't be carved in stone. It also shouldn't be dismissed uh, by school boards and politicians, etc., who haven't read it and don't understand it. Uh, it's un- unfortunately, it's become politicized. It was already a political topic, but it's been politicized. And some of the historians have criticized it, point out that it was not written by an historian. It was written by a a journalist. journalist. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, I I don't think it should be dismissed, but I don't think that it should replace everything else to try to explain uh, the the founding and the and the growth of this country. Uh, It's a very important story uh, and it, it, it should be told. It should be debated. It should be debated in school, not in school boards, it seems to me. What happened to the wealthier Americans who who bet on the British? What happened to them after the Revolutionary War was ended with the Treaty of Paris in 1783? Well, one thing the British did uh, that you could say was uh, laudable, even if it was one time only, uh, they took the whole budget for a year of the war 
and divided it among uh, loyalist refugees. They set up a claim commission that traveled around the former colonies. They took affidavits. William Franklin, for example, because his father was such a revolutionary, anything he got was suspect. The claims commissioners thought, well, this is just the Franklins uh, coming down on both sides. So he only got the value of the furniture that the British had put in a warehouse while he was uh, a prisoner of war. Uh, but many of them uh, put in legitimate claims and the British paid them. Um, but, but that's not the whole story. So many left. It's about one in four. There's a wonderful correspondence between Jefferson and John Adams, 40 years after. They're old men now. They've both been sure. presidents. They've been through the, the political wars. And they're saying to each other, what really happened? They're getting it all wrong, wrong now. The kids are getting it all wrong. What really happened? John Adams, when he stopped being long-winded, could cut right to it. And John Adams said, one third of Americans were on the side of England. One third of Americans wanted independence from England. The other third depended on where the armies were. And I think that's a brilliant analysis that holds up pretty. I don't know about his arithmetic, but uh, that's the idea that that I I think holds water, that there were people on both sides who believed in it. And you had 100,000 loyalists leave for England, for Canada, uh, for Barbados and settled in the Caribbean and those islands. that is the biggest percentage of refugees from any struggle since the partition of India. I mean, until the partition of India in 1949. So it's really significant uh, to look very hard at those people. Many of them lost everything. Some of them kept going. Benjamin Franklin disinherited his son very publicly. Uh, his son went around London looking like his father and joining so- social clubs, just like the old man. Um, but he was considered an American. He was always tainted by being considered too much of an American. Fast forward here in our final few minutes with uh, historian Willard Stern Randall discussing his book, The Founders Fortunes, How Money Shaped the Birth of America. How long did it take? And maybe let's go forward to the War of 1812. Did, for the United States to get it right financially, for people to put the American now states, not colonies, on a firm financial footing. And is it an overreach to say that the modern American economic system is just basically a vision of Alexander Hamilton writ large? I've been asked that question only once before. I finished biography of Jefferson. I was heading home after a tour. I stopped in New York for the American Revolution Roundtable, which was made up of amateur and serious historians. And I did my tap dance about Jefferson and all of that. I tried to (laughs) cut it short. I was exhausted. And when I was finished, I said, are there any questions? And from the back of the room came the stentorian voice of a New York lawyer saying, uh, only one thing, Mr. Randall, who was right, Jefferson or Hamilton? To which I said, Jefferson for his time, Hamilton for ours. 
got a round of applause, got on the plane and went home. And I thought, (laughs) why did I say that? I don't know beans about Alexander Hamilton. So I decided to find out more. I hope that while you were there, I was just in New York City a few months ago. I hope you ate at Francis Tavern, which is absolutely delightful. The place where Washington said goodbye to his command staff. That's where the talk was. Yeah. Wonderful. What's the last thing that, or the one thing that you would want a reader to take away from your book that when they close it for the final time, they go, man, I just, I didn't know that before. They put everything into it. A few of them got something out of it. A very few, a great deal. Most of them didn't. Those who went in rich mostly went bust. Robert Morris, the first American billionaire, wound up buying his own dinner in a jail for three years while his wife lived in a rented house in poverty. George Washington visited him in jail uh, and actually had a meal that Robert Morris bought George Washington from a tavern nearby, uh, a meal with a man who paid his troops himself. Uh, So you had George Washington, who didn't have any cash, and he had to borrow money to go to the Constitutional Convention from a wealthy neighbor, and Robert Morris, who had spent all his cash, given it away, and then made the terrible decision of changing his whole business model and speculating in land and lost it all. So I would would like people to remember um, that if these people went into it to make money, uh, they didn't. But I'm, I'm convinced that most of them didn't. They wanted an independent country. Robert Morris died happy. The last thing he wrote after he got out of jail was, I don't have a penny to my name, but I'm an independent citizen of the United States. And I think that sort of sums up the ethos of a lot of them. You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today has been the brilliant, the well-reviewed, and the very generous historian Willard Stern Randall. His latest book is called The Founder's Fortunes, How Money Shaped the Birth of America. Mr. Randall, thank you so much for your time, and thank you so much for for discussing this incredible book about what is really one of the most important eras in the history of the entire world. Thank you very much, Robert. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Strategies.com.